I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Oh, hey, Chris, I heard you're going to give us a homily today. So I'll just sit back and relax and you deliver the homily mm-hmm. and then Dennis will pontificate. How about that? <laughs> and well, the church gives us an awesome homily for Easter, Holy Saturday. You are you are underselling this thing, I think. <laughs> it, it is <laughs> oh, fantastic. Yeah, and I propose we talked about this because I remember when I first started doing the Liturgy of the Hours more attentively and I stumbled on this homily from the Office of Readings for Holy Saturday, my, my brain was like, what? How could the words and the claims in this homily be true? Chris, what do you have to say? Hmm. I mm. think you're right. It is, that's what Chris. Yeah. That's my favorite Chris response ever. He's like, mm. Mm. sort of like, sure. He's, sure. Like the, he's like the liturgical Homer. Mm. Mm. Holy Saturday. Yeah, I guess. Uh, no, Dennis is absolutely right. You too, Justin. This is a, this is just a great homily, and I suppose. Um, Maybe to, to to put a little bit of context in it, and then uh, we'll we'll get into the meat of it. Is so this is um, uh, it's on Holy Saturday, and it's de- it's describing what's going on um, as a bit. I, I'd put it this way: what's going on beneath the surface? Because on usually th- this is my experience on Holy Saturday is that um, it's just kind of a, a strange day, you know, Good Friday. You know, you'd been uh, fasting and abstaining and it's been silence and things like that. And that Holy Saturday comes around. And there's really not that much to do except just kind of hang out until the vigil. I mean, you try to maintain that uh, uh, quiet and reflective and meditative, uh, prayerful sort of spirit. But it, it just has a real strange, silent feel around it. But I think what we should know, and this is what Dennis is going to explain for us, is that um even though it might seem like there's not a lot going on above ground, uh, you know, on the skin of things, there's a whole lot of uh, awesome stuff going on beneath ground. And this is this is what the church generally calls the harrowing of hell, or when we say in the creed, he descended into the dead or he descended into hell. This is not, you know, the hell of the damned, but he's going to a particular place to carry out this work. And it's the I think the catechism says that his body is uh, lying in the tomb, but his divine person and his human soul are going to preach the gospel, preach the good news, even to to the day, uh, to those who, who have been waiting for him to come release them. So that's kind of the context, I guess, of of where this homily is situated for Holy Saturday. And the word Harrow, by the way. Uh, means to ravage, to plunder, to seize, to capture. It sounds pretty bad, right? Like an invading army or something. But Christ here is the invading army who's going into the realm of the dead and saying, I'm here to ravage hell and plunder you and seize you and capture you. Souls waiting for eternity and bring you to paradise. Back yeah. To yeah. And not to jump too far ahead, but it even says hell is trembling with fear because Christ is in the house. <laughs> He's got That's his right. weapon. And that even, is awesome. Even when Adam sees him, he says, he's, uh, I'm sorry, Dennis, I'm getting all this out no, of order. Okay. He strikes his breast in terror. Like, oh, 
Jesus, what's that? Jesus is here. Everybody look busy. Jesus is here. Uh, this, this is he is he is harrowing. He is uh, coming to do some very serious work. So again, just to juxtapose the quiet above ground with all of this awesome action that's taking place uh, surrounding Christ. And, you know, in the um, Office of Readings, they call this an ancient homily on Holy Saturday. So this is one of the things the liturgical reform of post-Vatican II era was trying to get to these ancient ideas. This is the opposite of Jansenism, this document here, this homily. Jansenism is kind of, you know, God is a little bit uh, persnickety and our human nature is so low that he's kind of waiting to be offended. And the, the most important thing we can do is, you know, sort of tremble in fear as to not offend God. This flips that whole thing on its head. The demons are trembling in fear because God has gone down to hell to rescue us from the power of death. And, you know, it's just beautifully written, too. You know, whoever did the translation did a good job. It starts, something strange is happening. There's a great silence on the earth. The whole earth keeps silence because the king is asleep. In other words, Christ is in the tomb. So, you know, above ground, as you say, it kind of looks like not much is going on. But... Uh, hell trembles with fear because Christ has gone into the tomb. You know, what's the tomb? It's this underground, dark place. Darkness is always, you know, equated with absence of God's presence going into the place where God is not, uh, where the power of death uh, reigns. And um, what does he say? Christ has gone to search for our first parent. Who is that? Adam. Adam, Adam. right. As for a lost sheep. So it brings it right into the... The good shepherd analogy who leaves the 99 and goes to find the other one. And he's gone to free Adam and Eve. He who is both God and the son of Eve, which is very interesting. There's a lot of typology in this, um, this little homily. Eve and Adam brought the fall about. And then God, who is Christ, who is God and also human, the son of Eve, is using humanity and divinity to bring back the offense against divinity that humanity uh, brought about. And Christ is bearing the cross, the weapon of his victory. You know, the, the next line, at the sight of him, Adam, the first man he created, stuck his breast in terror and cried out to everyone, my Lord be with you all. You know what that means, Chris? It took me a few hmm. times looking at that. The no, Lord be with you? No, no actually, actually, I don't know what it means. I mean, it, what catches my... No, the, the short answer is no. I've read this many times. And I, this is kind of a peculiar thing to, to understand. So tell me. Yeah, I don't know exactly, but you know, they're saying at the sight of Christ, Adam, who's sort of waiting in this place of the dead, cried out in terror. It's like, oh, <laughs> Jesus <laughs> is coming, look busy, like you said. And he says, the Lord be with you all. And Christ says, and with your spirit. Here's this liturgical greeting. So Christ's present is now, presence is now given to these people hmm. in the sleeping hand of darkness. And he takes Adam by the hand and says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So it's an interesting thing to think if they're still in fear of Christ coming to rescue them, Christ says, kind of like, you know, peace be with you. Um, let this be with your spirit, awake and rise from the dead and Christ will give you light. And so here it is, Christ saying, I'm going to give you the light in your darkness. And then he talks about who he is. I am your God. Uh, out of love for you and your descendants, I now by my own authority command all who are held in bondage to come forth, all who are in darkness to be enlightened, all who are sleeping to arise. Here's this kingly authority of Christ. He's saying, everybody in hell, I'm here to harrow <laughs> this place. Uh, I order you, sleeper, to awake. I did not create you to be held a prisoner in hell. Rise from the dead. I am the life of the dead. And, uh, of course, this great phrase, 
Rise, let us leave this place for I, for you are in me and I am in you. Together we form one person and we cannot be separated. Mm-hmm. Boom. You know, we've been talking about mystical body theology a lot. Um, Christ and us are one person that cannot be separated after the resurrection because we're members of the mystical body, adopted into the family of God, brought into the body of Christ through baptism. And so Christ can't be held in the tomb and we can't be held in the tomb either. The authority of God, power over death. And so in a sense, it you know, kind of makes sense to be afraid of the conquering God at first. But then he says, hey, guess what? I'm taking you back to the Father. I'm taking you back to paradise. This is why we did it. So, you know, again, the anti-Jansenist move here, I did not create you to be a prisoner in hell. And I think maybe a little people are afraid of that. Maybe that that's God's first choice. If we do one little problem, boom, in hell forever. Now, I know people get crazy about this, right? Because they think this is a kind of permissivism. Uh, but that's not what we're talking about. It's not God's will that that we be damned. We have the freedom to choose against God, and we have to have that freedom. But what he wants is that we were created to be with him, but he gave us the free choice to say no as well. So Christ comes and says, come with me. We're one. Unless you separate yourself from me, I'm taking you back to the heart of the Father. Dennis, this reminds me of a homily I heard from a priest once uh, when he was preaching on the uh, the when Christ gives Peter the keys to the kingdom and he says, you are the, you are the rock on which I will build my church and the gates of uh, the netherworld will not prevail against it. Right. He talked about how we always think that, you know, the devil is after us and we're being attacked by him all the time, which is not necessarily untrue, but we have this in our mind that like this, that Jansenist type of mentality. But when, when actuality, the church it not only is already victorious is, but is most often on offense and that it's the netherworld that has to put up a gate against the church. Right. Right. I heard Bishop Barron talk about that in one of his homilies a long time ago. When you read that, oh, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We think, oh, the gates are of the church and hell won't get in those gates. It's actually the other way around. Hell's gates, which are, you know, locking the souls in, you know, at least this kind of, you know, not eternal damnation, but this hell waiting for the redemption. They cannot keep God out to get in there and rescue those souls who are in there. And so the gates of hell did not prevail against Christ. And then, you know, Christ gives that authority to Peter, right? He's the one who's keeping that salvific mission alive. And he has the keys to open that, uh, open that gate. There's a, you know, in uh, all of this Ash Wednesday, all of this Lent and Easter stuff, there, there's these images about this battle, so you've on uh, way back in Ash Wednesday, uh, the opening prayer talks about it describes Lent as a campaign of Christian service and that we're armed with weapons of self-restraint and that, uh, you know, what sacraments and symbols are like these uh, ballistic things that we hurl before, you know, the enemy to bust down his his gates and his doors and to and to conquer him. And I think um I don't know if we got this, but it does it say that Jesus shows up with his cross, which is the weapon right. that he has in hand. And uh, so, yeah, uh, he's our captain, uh, uh, all of this stuff. It's um, I don't know what you fellas feel like, but, you know, sometimes it's kind of uh, uh, what, what's the word, you know, is, it, is antiseptic the word? You know, everything's just so neat and clean. 
uh, you know, these triduum thing like that. Well, this year things are a little bit uh, more hairy, <laughs> a little bit more deadly, it seems. Antiseptic is probably the best way to describe uh, what we're going through right now. Uh, and yeah. it's true because eschatologically, right, heaven mm. is antiseptic, right? Sepsis says disease, death, mm. bringer of decay. You know, the eschatology is the time after that. And so what we're we're pondering here is the salvific mission of Christ in the, in the liturgical year and taking this particular moment where you have the souls of the just who are waiting to get to heaven. I remember when I first heard that as a kid, I thought that seemed very strange. Moses and all the, they're not in heaven yet. They're in hopefully some kind of reasonable, pleasant kind of eternal semi-eternal waiting room where Christ is like, hey, guess what? The doctor will see you now. And that doctor hmm. is me. And I'm taking you to the Father to, to enter into paradise. And, uh, you know, he explains it in this in this beautiful homily. You know, I, your God, became your son. I, the Lord, took the form of a slave. This is not I showed up with a tank, the earthly sense of, of violence, but conquering death by entering into death. Descended to earth and beneath the earth. For the sake of man, I became a man without help, free among the dead. And here's a beautiful little typological move here. For the sake of you who left the garden, in other words, Adam and Eve chose against God and left the garden of Eden. I was betrayed to the Jews in a garden, right? So this is where Judas uh, offers Christ to the soldiers. And I was crucified in a garden. And so the garden that became poisonous then becomes the garden of new life. There's lots of things like that all throughout the um, this, this salvation history. You think thousands of years, different people writing different books under different inspiration, hopefully all by the Holy Spirit, can come together with this kind of um, unity and poetry and um, typological uh, fulfillment across time. It's just an, uh, an amazing uh, thing. You know, when you get toward, oh, go ahead, Chris. Well, I, the, one of those, uh, maybe you're going to get to this, is that, that I find uh, particularly moving is that one about, um, what is about see my hands nailed firmly to a tree for you who once wickedly stretched out your hand mm -hmm. to a tree. Yeah. So. Right. So Adam and Eve are saying, give me, give me, give me. I want that. I want that. And Christ says, I'll stretch out my hands, but it'll be the self offering and not the grasping for something. But no there, it, it, out. Remind, it reminds me too. There's this line from St. Augustine, which I think is in the office of readings for, um, I don't know, maybe it's, um, Holy Week or the Octave, I can't remember. He talks about uh, Christ affecting this marvelous exchange with us. So we gave him the power to die and he gives us the power to live. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of see that uh, in, in these things as he he's kind of swapping all of these. He's making this exchange himself for, for Adam, for me, for you. And all these things that got us into trouble in this exchange, he's undoing so that... Uh, um, paradise can be restored. And I bet Thomas Aquinas would say something like this is fitting, right? God is so <laughs> awesome and smart and ordered that he doesn't just say, oh, snap my God fingers and you're done. There's this kind of amazing order and poetry and logic and unbelievable complexity to salvation, but that also gets right to the heart of the matter. You died through a tree, I'll save you through a tree. The first Adam fell, I'll give you a new Adam. The first Eve, we'll give you Mary as the new Eve, and I'll return you to this garden that's even better than the garden that I wanted you to have. There's there's something really great about that. Imagine if, as a parent, you could raise your kids that way. <laughs> People would say, you're a genius, right? You know, parenting books. But here's, you know, God, the Father, who's parenting the whole of uh, time and creation uh, this way. And he continues with that, you know, I slept on the cross and a sword pierced my side. 
for you who slept in paradise and brought forth Eve from your side. So Adam, you know, had his rib taken and Eve was formed. But then when Christ's side is pierced in the same way, the church is born, blood and water, baptism and Eucharist. And the sword that pierced me has sheathed the sword that was turned against you. Do you know what that is? That that one's not obvious right away, but what's the sword that is turned against Adam and Eve? Any thoughts? Isn't that the angel with the flaming sword that stands outside Eden, not letting them back in? Yeah, exactly. So Adam and Eve get kicked out. There's a flaming sword put right there. In other words, you can't get back in. And scripture says so that you don't have access to the tree of life. They're not ready for the tree of life yet. And so... The sword that pierced Christ means we're now ready for it. And this sheath or the scabbard covers up the sword and puts out the flame. There's another place somewhere else that says the blood of Christ uh, extinguished the flame of the sword that kept people out of paradise. It's really beautiful as well. It's awesome. Yeah, isn't it? But this last paragraph is the blow your mind paragraph. I mean, this other stuff is kind of predictable and good. You know, awesome God, right? But we've heard a lot of this before. But what does is, what is Christ in the first person say to all these redeemed people? Let's leave this place. The enemy led you out of the earthly paradise. In other words, the enemy tricked you and called you out of perth- earthly paradise. But Jesus says to the humans here, I will not restore you to that paradise, but enthrone you in heaven. Boom. You know, it'd be pretty good just to go back to the Garden of Eden, right? That's sort of a nice place. Fruit off the trees and all that stuff. But he's saying, I'm not going to bring you back to there but just something even better than that and throwing you in heaven. Dennis, we were reading in a liturgical movement class. It was was a piece by Monsignor Hillenbrand uh, at one of these early liturgical weeks or liturgical conferences they used to have. And this was from the forties and was the topic was new life in Christ. And he was talking about how awesome grace is and things like that. And I've always thought it was kind of a little commentary uh, on what we would sing in the exaltet, that Felix culpa, that happy fault. Mm -hmm. And it's expressed similarly here. And what Monsignor Hillenbrand says is that, you know, he said, people, do you realize that you have greater opportunities for joy and happiness and life and fulfillment now than your first parents ever did in the garden? Even before the fall? Even before the fall. You've got more potential now after the fall and redemption than Adam and Eve ever had in the original garden. That is amazing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it lines right up with this because this last paragraph here is the one when I read it. It's like, I can't believe these words are being said. Hmm. I will not restore you to paradise, but enthrone you in heaven. Okay, that's already a big deal. God is going to enthrone us. In other words, share his kingship with us. I forbade you the tree that was only a symbol of life. So the tree of life in the garden. But I, who am life itself, am now one with you. Okay, so that was if you eat this fruit, you'll have some knowledge. Now, Christ and humanity are the same. This is what they call divinization or, or theosis, you know, becoming God, so godlike that you can say you are God. But this is the phrase that really got me. I appointed cherubim to guard you as slaves are guarded. Cherubim are high-powered angels. But now I make them worship you as God. He's talking to humanity. Does this make you a little nervous that language when i first read it i didn't understand it like the cherubim are the the angels out the throne of god right there on the either side of the ark of the covenant and all that and now they're worshiping us as god how could that be without some kind of weird i don't know what weird self-aggrandizement yeah no and understand where this is placed this is the what the church 
wants us to have in our minds on Holy Saturday, right? This is not some obscure text that's dug up, you know, in a library somewhere that, you know, the church doesn't want us to hear or read or come across. This is, this is what is put on display on Holy Saturday, you know, this divinization and theosis. It's amazing. Right. And of course, we're not God yet, but we're becoming more and more full in that uh, reality. But the idea is at the end of time, our lowly bodies, our lowly humanity, which is low in the fall, will be not only perfected to some kind of zero point out of the negative side, but shot through with divine life and energy that will become almost indistinguishable from the reality of God himself. And so this phrase here, the throne formed by the cherubim awaits you. Do you know do you know what that is, either of you? The throne formed by the cherubim? Isn't it, uh, is it in Ezekiel somewhere where the throne of God is described as cherubim and they're going hither and thither and up and down and it's just this uh, uh, crazy sort of cherubic uh, throne? Yeah, is but it's it? even older than that because what's on, there are two, these big cherubs, big angels on either side oh, of- It's the Ark. The Ark of the Covenant, right? Which is no God's throne in the Temple of Solomon. So the throne between the cherubim wow. is sort of uh, poetic language for the Ark of the Covenant many times in, in the Psalms and other places. So in other words, the throne of God awaits you. It's bearers, swift and eager. In other words, the angels, they want us sitting on God's lap in a way. Right? Mm. Here we are sharing the throne with God whose love is so great that he wants to just give us himself and share himself with us the way he shared himself with Christ. This is not the Jansenist God, right? This is not the arms crossed. I dare you to approach me and see if I'm going to fry you or not. That's not what the, the great traditional um, Catholicism is all about. Now, this is not the same as presumption, right? Whatever I do, I can sit in God's lap, right? This is, I surrender myself to you and I allow you, God, to make me holy. And look at this next slide. Oh, go ahead, Chris. Well, no, no. I think that's that's the key to understanding this theosis and divinization. You know, if, if Adam and Eve got themselves in trouble, it's not because they wanted to be like God, but because they wanted it on their terms, mm -hmm. according to their own mind, their own will, their own efforts, their own timetable. That's what <laughs> led to their downfall. And I think the lesson after all of these uh, centuries and millennia of suffering is that if we are going to be like God, which is why God made us in the first place in his image and likeness, it's not going to be because of any efforts of my, well, it'll be some efforts of my own, but principally it's because God is going to make it happen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's what makes divinization becoming like God different from Adam and Eve wanting to become like God. Because the words you just said, it's by surrendering ourselves to the power of God who can transfigure us to become like him. That's not what Adam and Eve were doing, but that's what we're supposed to be doing. Right. And of course, you know, the liturgy is not mentioned in this homily, but of course the liturgy is the principal place where that happens. We say, yes, I accept the death with Christ and I rise again with Christ. I give away my fallen self, Father, so you can make me glorified. And then if that happens, then what's the last couple of sentences of this homily? The bridal chamber is adorned. The banquet is ready. The eternal dwelling places are prepared. The treasure houses of all good things lie open. That might be my favorite sentence ever written mm. in the history of the world, right? Because what's a bridal chamber? Saying a lot, man. It's the place where the two who are separated become one. Even in earthly marriage, you know, that's the bridal chamber. But think of it as God and all of his creation. Uh, it's adorned. It's festive. It's ornamented. It's ready. The banquet, the giving of, of delights, and the eternal dwelling places are prepared. Heaven 
ready for us. And the treasure houses of all good things lie open. I don't know if you guys remember, there was a, a Bugs Bunny episode where, uh, <laughs> uh, what is his name? Uh, Daffy Duck said, I should have taken the left at, at Albuquerque. Ickety, ackety, oop, it's yours. He was oh, in charge yeah. of this, uh, he was like a genie or something, and there was this cave full of treasure. And uh, Donald Duck like becomes small, but he dives in all the gold, and he says, "I'm a happy miser. I'm socially secure." And he's running around with all these gold coins and everything. And that's the image that comes to mind. It's like every treasure is laid open, and the kingdom mm-hmm. of heaven has been prepared for you for all eternity. That's the last sentence. Did you just mix up like a Disney cartoon? Well, and uh, that's Warner Brothers, actually. But yeah, uh, okay. uh, the uh, idea is that <laughs> Chris is like, how are you talking about Daffy Duck? And uh, I think it plays. I think it, it does, plays. Yeah, because there's this cave full of treasure and Daffy Duck wants it. Of course, he's grasping for it instead. Um, but that's this idea. What What do we want? Think of a, like a cruise. It's like no work and all fr- food is just laid out for you all the time. Take this to this high, high level. God doesn't want us to stand before him, afraid of him and thinking that he doesn't love us and that he's mostly annoyed and mostly angry. This is, to, in my mind, true Christianity right here, where we say, yes, I trust in God's goodness. I mean, you were telling me, Chris, when your son Dominic was in Africa and couldn't get back, you were having sleepless nights. I mean, what would you have given to get him back that day? You would have given your kidney or your right arm or your You would have left the other 99 kids that you have <laughs> that you pursued Dominic. And, you know, there's the old uh, kind of Hebrew maxim, if you can do this, how much more can God, mm-hmm. you know, if you who are a sinner can do this, how much more could God? So think about the best moments in your own life or the best loving moments you've ever heard of. If, if humans can do that, how much more would God want this? And so all of Lenten practice, preparing yourself to receive this gift. How do we prepare ourselves? We say no to our distractions, yes to our quiet, yes to listening to God, yes to prayer, yes to opening up our souls to all this um, glory that's been prepared for us for all eternity. And then don't take the wrong turn at Albuquerque. Just dive into the glory of heaven. And so if anybody out there is old enough to remember the Jansenist time, or maybe you're young enough and discovered ancient Catholicism as you think your grandparents uh, learned it. Sometimes this poison of Jansenism that all the popes called, you know, a a heretical influence, God is waiting to fry me, is that's not the Christian God. God is waiting for us to say yes to him, to make ourselves available, and then to share his own glory with us. And this, uh, this homily says it beautifully and poetically. I think we need to start another podcast, uh, Looney Tune Liturgy. <laughs> I think we had enough of that back in the 90s. We just use a bunch of Bugs Bunny metaphors and, <laughs> and Elmer Fudd. Elmer sure. Fudd. Who's the liturgical Elmer Fudd in your life? Oh, you know what the closing should be instead of going peace? It should be, that's all, folks. Oh, my gosh. I need to wrap this up. Peace be with you, folks. But, Jesse, you can you link to this homily somewhere? Absolutely. Okay. Is it on the Adoramus site, perchance? Uh, I don't know. It may be know. on uh, one of those online uh, Letters of the Hours things. Okay. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And I think we should probably uh, probably answer a liturgy question. What do you think? Absolutely. Let's do it. That's all, folks. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. 
This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? This week, we have a question from John. John says, with the current state of being stuck at home for an undetermined amount of time and with the Easter Triduum fast approaching, I was wondering about how we could appropriately use candles for the Easter Vigil. Since we cannot light our candle from the main Paschal candle, can we just uh, for uh, sorry, I'm backing up there. That's my backup noise. He says, can we just light our own candles as well? Is it inappropriate to use our baptism candles if we don't have any other candles in the house? And last question, are we able to create our own Paschal candle to have in our house? Being unable to obtain and participate in the usual sacramental rituals has left me wondering how we can best and most effectively participate in the Easter Triduum. He then goes on to say, thank you so much for all you do, especially during season three as your recap of Sacrosanctum Cachillium, Chris. And yeah, the season, that up. And, yes. No, that's it. And he says, end this season going over the post-conciliar documents. It's so great to hear what you actually written, what was actually written, not what someone else thinks Vatican II says. Sincerely, mm-hmm. John. Thanks, John. Yes. Chris, you're a so, candle man. Yeah, I'd say the short answer to John's questions are yes, yes, and yes. You can make your own Paschal candle. Yeah, why not? If that's uh, like a simulacrum attempted Paschal candle. That's cause for uh, excommunication. No, it is not. It's like Come attempting on, marriage when you're already married. There's <laughs> nothing like that Whoa. at all. I'm just, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, so the first, can you light candles? Yes, I think you should. Yeah, get get all sorts of candles from around the house. And yeah, I mean, I, I hear Pope Francis and others, you know, talk about, you know, don't waste this hopefully unique uh, triduum and vigil. So yeah, I would do those things and I hopefully will do those things. In fact, your second question, can you light your baptismal candles? I haven't thought of that, but you know, my, our baptismal candles of our eight kids are probably tucked away somewhere in a storage room and they'll be there indefinitely. Why not get them out and use them? Right? Because the the vigil, in I think, in a certain way, is the anniversary of your baptism. Even if you were baptized on a Sunday in August, the vigil is trying to recount, you know, that great mystery where Christ passed from life to death to new life, and that's the reality of our own baptisms. And so, why not express that in the home with your with your own baptismal candle? So. When I'm done with this, I'm going to go. Try, I'm going to go try to find our own baptismal candle. That is a fantastic idea. Uh, the third, can you make sort of a, a you know, obviously it's not, um, you know, a Paschal candle like would be used in your church, but can you make like a uh, a Paschal candle for the domestic church? I'd say yes. 
Yeah, and burn it throughout the. You know, if you can, if you can make an Advent wreath uh, in the home and use those candles throughout the Advent and maybe part of the Christmas season, I guess if you do that sort of thing, yeah. You know, why can't you have kind of a, a domestic Paschal candle lit at the vigil and accompanying you through and to the end of the Easter season? In my opinion, those are fantastic ideas that are trying to fill that void, that uh, kind of that sacramental void. I mean, Jesus will still be present and working and will still be needing his grace. But what's different is we don't have that sacramental void that puts us into contact. And so we need something else. And I think those are great ideas. Yeah. If you're in the room, dark room with the family and say, Christ, our light, and then light your candles. Hey, it's not the church, not the full mystical body, but it's still a very powerful moment to say, Christ, our light is coming into this living room or dining room, wherever you happen to be. And uh, let it be, let it be what it can be. All right, John, I hope that answers your question. And if you want to ask, a, ask us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Tweet us at liturgyguys or tweet Dennis at DMAC Super Taster. Tastes more than you do. Or, well, forget about it. Chris doesn't even know this, John. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I, come on. I want something. <laughs> Maybe, John, you should be on the podcast and we can kick Chris out because you have these great <laughs> liturgical domestic church innovations. So. <laughs> All right, thank you and God bless. God bless. Now that's a podcast. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Adoremus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College. <laughs>